the conversion of Saul, that's what we're going to be at here. I'm going to refer to him as Paul because it's very difficult to go back and forth between Saul and Paul. So it's just Paul this morning, but at the time, it's Saul. And then uh, Brandon Grayson's going to be up here next week. He's going to be doing 20 through 31, and then we'll finish up 32 through 43 with Peter ministering to various other places in the, in the in that region near Joppa, and a really neat story of how God like weaves together uh, so that the Gentiles would be saved. And and last week we were looking at um, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, right? Paul said, I'm not ashamed of this. The gospel, right? It's the power of God unto salvation. The Jew first, and then for the, the Greek or the Gentile. And we were chatting how there's a little bit, you see God, if, if the Jew was here first and the Greek was over here, how God kind of does this roundabout way of getting to the Greek where uh, it was the Hellenistic Jews were there in Acts chapter 2 as well. And then you have, uh, you have the Ethiopian eunuch, who if you remember last week, we thought it's very likely he was partially Jewish because of all the, the history that's there and so on. Um, and as we're traveling through, and uh, the, then you have the Samaritans who were partially Jewish as well, and he's kind of traveling through. He's just moving, and then eventually in Acts chapter 10, man, we've got full-fledged us. For those of you who are Gentiles, I know some are Jews in here, but Gentiles, man, like we can be saved. We can have the Spirit too. We can be made new. How cool is that? And so that's Acts chapter 10. We're getting there, but God is so wise to work. I see it incrementally just getting people ready and setting the stage for the gospel to go worldwide and then affect us today. Can you believe it, that you're sitting in a church today, born again, and it's kind of on the backs of these people who just faithfully follow Jesus and moved by the Holy Spirit, allowing God to have his way. That's exciting stuff because then we get to just carry it on until Jesus comes back, which could be any time. I'm fired up about that. So we have a job to do until then. Acts chapter 9, that's what's happening. Last week, if you remember, we're, we're memorizing scripture as a fellowship. Every week we've got something new. If you go to horizonindy.org slash word, like the word of God, word, <clears throat> uh, you can go and find out what's going on and we're, we'll try to figure out. We send messages out every week. Would love to see you guys continue to be a part of it. Memorizing the scripture this last week was Isaiah chapter 53, verse six, and it really provided a perfect launching point for Acts chapter nine. And it was all we like sheep have gone astray. Each have gone our own way, where we've turned aside, gone our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And you see that in this guy like Paul, and I surely you see that in your own life, our tendencies to go our own way and to do our own thing, where I am the king of my own life instead of him. <clears throat> and he paid for it. And I'm no longer guilty of what I've done, I've been set free from that. From the burden of it, the weight of that sin, he took it. Right here, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. What an incredible verse. Hundreds of years before Christ would come, the beauty of the gospel being laid out, that there would be one who would come and bear our sins on our behalf, so that I don't have to. That the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ, his own son, God himself coming in the likeness of sinful man <clears throat> to the cross on my behalf, on your behalf, so that you could be free. To put your faith in him, to consider him Lord and master and the king, the boss of your life and knowing and believing in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. He promises that you'll be saved. 
That's something that you could have today. For those who don't, they have an opportunity to follow Christ today. It's the day of salvation, right? Hebrews, in chapter 4, was reading through it this morning. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each and every to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And when we've gone our own way, we see there's a God who faithfully pursues and says, come, come here, come back. The Lord would woo us. Remember that awkward moment a couple weeks ago where God woos us to him, drawing us near. All right. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked letters from him to, to the synagogues of Damascus so that he, I'm sorry, so that if he found any who are of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone um, around him from heaven. And so here we are. Acts chapter 9, we did it. All right, Lord, help us navigate your word. Teach us, Holy Spirit, come that we would have an understanding that these things would be driven into our hearts and they would be able to take root and produce fruit. For your glory, here's your church, your redeemed. We love you, Lord Jesus. Have your way. In your name we pray, amen. Damascus, what in the world is Paul doing going to Damascus? Here's the answer. I have no idea. (laughs) No idea what he's doing. But there are synagogues in Damascus. There's Jewish population there. And so he's going there for some reason. Could he have been traveling on some pharisaical business? Who knows? Here's what's up. He's going to Damascus. Now, it could be, listen, it is possible that he's going because he heard there's Christians there and he wants to just go and stamp them out. Certainly possible. It almost feels like he's traveling to Damascus. And while he's going, he wants to be able to roast any Christian he finds along the way. And so he's asking for power uh letters from the the powers in jerusalem that he would be able to go to damascus and say hey i've got in my hands authority to be able to kill and to, and to put into prison these people damascus was the capital is the capital or was i don't know if it is now is it the capital of syria is it no i heard a no any yet right, let's let's not argue about it i'm on unity here today okay here's a cool anyway capital of at least then right let's go with this i should have i'm so sorry Damascus was the capital of Syria and is one of the oldest continuous settlements on the planet. And it actually contains something within it that we'll, we'll get to eventually. That's a really neat little historical fact. <clears throat> uh, about 130 miles north of uh, Jerusalem in that area, about a six to seven day journey that Paul would have been on conducting his way as he's traveling about. If he finds Christians, he's taking care of them. Like, so we're being introduced to a man full of rage, a man full of hate and vitriol. We'll see it. He was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So just pause for a second. We're going to spend a little time considering what in the world would this have been like and what kind of a man is that that breathes threats and murders. Now, very occasionally, and that's probably a weird way of saying that, It's kind of like an oxymoron, isn't it? Very occasionally. Maybe it's not. I don't know. Anyway, I come across this word. Wilson was uh, Wilson brought it up. We have like a study group on Tuesdays that goes together. So anything that's good from this comes from someone else, I promise. And so they're there and we're chatting and he, we're looking up. What does it mean to breathe threats, right? This kind of idea. Well, he said the word pestilential 
which I had never heard that word before. I've heard of pestilence and so on, but pestilential was like, what in the world is that? <clears throat> it's a word describing Paul and uh, how, what, what he's breathing out. And so that was from a concordance. It means partaking in the nature of the plague or other infectious diseases like a pestilence, right? And so what's coming out of him is like this disease spreading, this hate towards Jesus Christ being the Messiah. That was what he was mad about. And we'll get to us like why we think he was upset about it. Uh, it's a disease. It's producing or tending to produce an infectious disease. So you've got this guy moving about, saying things that are affecting others. Like Paul's influence and impact on the people around him was severe and unfortunate. He, he wasn't like he was some nice guy that had all these things. Like, no, he was actually hating people and, and seeing people be murdered. Like, that's serious. I don't know if it gains traction in your mind, but this is, these are actually things that happened in real life to believers just like you who were walking and trying to follow Jesus. And all of a sudden, there are these people who have authority in the land. You know, we don't have that now, praise God, who could come in here and take you and either have you killed right away or put into prison. Like they had that authority. We don't live in that land, praise God for it. But like that's what's happening here breathing out these threats, poisonous and infectious and pestilential <clears throat> things, mischievous, destructive, pernicious, <clears throat> anything and all that came from his mouth was hateful and murderous, and he was held captive by it. Now, I'm not particularly an angry person like me. There's others who have different struggles. I have my own. I promise you, anger is not one of them. It just isn't. <clears throat> um. But you think about what is it about anger, and when you do become angry, something happens. Maybe it, it makes an injustice against you, or maybe you look out on the world and you see something, and it's like, oh, that just makes me mad. You get angry. A lot of times when you're hurt, you get angry. Whether it's with your spouse or the kids or something at school happens or something at workplace happens, you get angry because you've been hurt. And there's a wounding that has taken place. I don't know what all of you were like prior to coming to Christ, but I know there were those who struggled mightily with anger because of what has happened and things that have taken place, and Jesus has healed it. And he's brought peace, and he's brought rest in their lives. Well, here's a guy who is a, he's a, he's a rage monster, right? He's going crazy. Something has happened. Something is in turmoil within him, causing him to have this. This word, the threatenings and the slaughter, were so to speak the element from which he drew his breath. So the word being used here that Luke chose to use as he was inspired by the Spirit, when Paul would draw his breath in, you guys with me? Sorry. When he breathed in, the air that he breathed in was pestilential, murderous threats. That's what he breathed in. And so then when he breathed it out, guess what came out? Murderous threats, just hatred for the Christians. Okay, painted that picture. Fine, we're done with it. <clears throat> Not only did Paul have a diabolical hatred, which, by the way, I think it is, there's something demonic about it. You think about what, what are Christians? What are you? You believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he was the one that God sent to save people from their sins. And then when you believe in him, right, like we've talked about, you'll be saved. So I believe in Jesus. You guys believe in Jesus. And what does that mean for us? Like, why would you want to kill someone who believes in Jesus? Now, for Paul, it's like, well, he believes uh, that there was a, a doing away with the old covenant, that a new covenant had come, a better one on better promises, right? If you read through Hebrews, and so he would have been upset, no doubt about that, 
that Jesus was the Messiah. That's why the others were upset, and Ananias and Caiaphas and all the others in the Sanhedrin, they're mad because they're preaching the name of Jesus. And they said, no, 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 he is not the Messiah. There's a disagreement there, but that disagreement is leading to wanting to kill someone, which is intense. Don't know if you guys have ever been there before. I've had thoughts where you maybe murder somebody in your heart, but I've never actually done it. <laughs> okay, just so we're clear. Never done it. But like, what kind of a person actually comes to a place where they hate someone so much that they want to kill them? Now, listen, I know that that's not out of the purview of our nature and the sinful flesh that we have and the anger and rage that comes up, whether it's political or not or whatever it might be. Guys, we're prone to that. That needs to be a, come under the control of the Holy Spirit. And if we got hearts like that, you need to repent. You need to ask the Lord to forgive you of that and to, and to, to heal you from it. And he can and he will, right? He's faithful because what, I mean, hopefully as Christians, like we, we love people really well. We ought to. They'll know that we're his disciples by the love we have for one another. Not like the crazy, like frou-frou worldly love, but like the world or the love defined in scripture that we sacrificially serve and give of our lives so that others uh, can be encouraged and elevated. Like, yeah, we love people. Uh, when people are hurt, who steps in? The church steps in. If there's a disaster, guess who's the first to give of their resources? The church. If there's hurricanes, who are the ones who drive down and go and help and serve? The church does. When people are upset, when the community needs help, who who is there? Like if people need clothing, here we are. The church should be, right? And yet you see this hatred for that, for those people. It's like, it's it's demonic. It just doesn't make sense that you would want to murder those types of people that love you and want to care for you and give you food when you're hungry and clothe you when you need it and help shelter you and so on and so forth. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And hopefully that's the kind of place that we are, the type of people that we are when we're out there in the world. It's, it's just bizarre. But for, for Paul, not only did he have that kind of hatred, but he had the ability of punitive authority from the highest Jewish authority to go and actually do something. He had a lot of bark, but he also had bite, meaning he actually could do something and, and hurt these people. Jesus promised this would happen in Matthew chapter 10, 22. He said, you will be hated by all for my sake. Those who endure to the end will be saved. He repeats it then in Matthew 24. Context is a little different concerning the end times. But he says, they will deliver you up in tribulation and they're going to kill you. This is what he's, it's like his pep talk to his disciples, right? They're going to deliver you up to tribulation. They're going to kill you. You will be hated by all nations <laughs> for my name's sake. Yay, right? Let's go. <laughs> yeah, they did, didn't they? They went into this very day. Their testimony continues in the fact that we're here sharing Jesus in the year 2023. You guys ready for that? <clears throat> Just a strange demonic thing that goes on. What happened in Acts chapter 5, 33 through 40? I'm only going to reference it, uh, but you, you can turn to it or it could be there in your notes. In Acts chapter 5, <clears throat> 33 through 40, it's the story where Peter and John are before the Sanhedrin, the disciples, and they come to a place where they're mad at them because they're preaching in the name of Jesus and they're trying to kill them. Well, Gamaliel stands up and he says, you guys, listen. And, and, the, and scripture will say this, Luke will make this comment that Gamaliel was held in high esteem among all the people who were there. He was like a, he was an awesome dude. <clears throat> and uh, the whole Jewish world looked to him and appreciated his uh, reverence for the law and who he was as a Pharisee. 
he stands up and he says, and I'll, I'll quote it in verse 38, I say to you, keep away from these men. And that would have probably, likely, maybe been difficult for Paul to hear. Paul sees guys who are perverting the truth of what he found scripture to be. And, and then Gamaliel says, stay away from them. Leave them alone. Because uh, if this is a work of men, it will come to nothing. Which, by the way, is true. You see wisdom there coming from Gamaliel. That's some good stuff. If this is a work of man, it's going to come to nothing. But if it's a work of God, you cannot overthrow it. Isn't that cool? If this is a work of God, there's nothing that you can do about it. You're going to find yourself fighting against God. And so what would it have been like for Paul to hear his leader? Now, Gamaliel was the rabbi of Paul. So Paul hung out with Gamaliel, right? And he would have su submitted his life to his rabbi. And he would have tried to become like his rabbi and then would eventually maybe replace Gamaliel and he would have continued teaching as they did. That's kind of how they did things. And so here's Paul observing Gamaliel, perhaps in his own mind, capitulate to this and say, don't worry about him. Leave him alone. Don't, don't touch him. So what does Paul do? Here's what it appears. Is he usurps the authority of his own rabbi and goes to Ananias and says, I want letters from you because I'm going to go kill him. And you think, oh my goodness, what would have gone on and how unusual it would have been perhaps for you to usurp the authority of your own rabbi because you see him as a failure and he failed to protect what he was supposed to be protecting. And so Paul takes it into his own hands and says, and I'll do it. I'll go and I'll find him and I will kill them and I'll put him in prison. And so this breaking away would have had, he would have been in this, this place of tumultuous, like, ah, you know that inner, inner like struggle of like, you know what's right. Well, we're going to get to that. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Why did Paul persecute the church? Just so you guys have it in your notes, Galatians chapter 1, 13 and 14, he explains it. It's there. We'll go on beyond it. In case you were wondering, he found any who were of the way. It's a reference to Jesus' followers. That comes from John chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no one can come to the Father except through Jesus Christ. And so they adopted that name, the way, because of what Jesus had said. Uh, all right. That gets us to four and five. So a light shone from heaven. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. Now, what in the world does that mean? We're going to talk about it here in a second. Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, sorry. Why are you persecuting me? Now, up to this point in time, you guys know this. Paul is persecuting the church, right? And yet here's Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? And I, want that, I don't want that to get lost on you. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 12 through 27, talk, Paul talks about the concept or idea that the church is the body of Christ. Ephesians will talk about it even more explicitly. But we are the body of Christ. And in John 17, Jesus prayed that there would be unity, <clears throat> that the church would be unified but we'd also share a unity that they have like what the Father and the Son have. Obviously different nature, but that we would be unified to them. And so what happened is Jesus has bridged that gap. We now have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That which was once broken because of sin, he's made a way. There's a unity that's come because of it. And we see this kind of walking through as, as Jesus approaches Paul, says, why are you persecuting me? Paul's persecuting the church. When the church suffers, guess who feels it? Jesus does. 
He senses, he knows it, he understands us. You guys know that Hebrews talks about how he is a good high priest because he's been there and he's done that. He suffered just like you guys suffer. He knows your pain, he knows your hurt, and that's why we can go to him because he can relate, he understands who we are. Even though he is the king of all kings and Lord of lords, he knows your pain, he knows your suffering, he knows your hurts, and he's there to minister to you and be there for you and say, hey, I've got you. You're being persecuted, he comforts. But he approaches Paul, confronts him, not comforts, but confronts him, you're persecuting me. Why are you doing that? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. Now, what's a goat? Uh, it's just like a cattle prod, basically, is what it is. <clears throat> it can have different forms, but envision somebody on a plow. Back in the day, they've got their ox in front of them, and they're sitting on a plow, and let's say that ox is being a pain in the rump. And so you take you take the goat, and you stick him right in the hind quarters, and it gets him moving again, right? I would show pigs back in 4-H back in the day, and you would take this. We used a plastic pipe, like a PVC-style pipe, and you'd pop them real nice right in the hind quarter, get them to move a little bit. That was like a goat. So to kick against that's going to cause you pain. You can imagine similar like spurs on a horse where you grind them in there and the horse is like, it's time to go apparently. And they get going, right? And so it's hard to kick against that because it hurts. And so it's this interesting thing. Jesus knows what's going on in the heart of Paul, right? He sees that turmoil where he's molded over in his head. He's watched his own, his own rabbi almost like, just leave him alone. And if it's a work of God, why fight it? Well, Paul's like, because it's not a work of God, I'm going to fight it, right? And so then he hears Stephen, who was giving an address and, and, and uh, proving that Jesus was the Christ, and they couldn't stand up to his wisdom, Paul being there, and he's just like, oh, so he knows the scriptures. He knows the way that they're trying to orchestra, like, understand that Jesus is the Messiah. He's, you know how it is when you're going through these things, and somebody's brought something to you, and you're like, oh my gosh, I've never thought of that, and that kind of undermines what I've always believed, and you're like, ah, and your world begins to crumble and fall apart. And it's like, man, so Paul's kind of at that spot, right? Likely, where Jesus sees him and that wrestling and the turmoil and the difficulty that goes on there where he's like, man, what is happening in there? Is Jesus really the Messiah? Surely not, but he knows it. Like deep down inside, it's hard to kick against the goads. What, the reason I bring all that up, is there was probably something going on in Paul's heart where he's just kicking against what he knows is right. And he's kicking against it. He knows deep down that Jesus is the Messiah. He sees it. He's read Psalm 22. He's read Isaiah 53. He knows these scriptures. Surely not because, and here's why do, and so then you think, well, why do you kick against the goads? Why do you resist the work of God in your own life? And there's lots of reasons because we're, we're morons and we just, we resist and we kick against it even to our own detriment which I believe is what Paul was doing, we resist what we know is right for lots of different reasons. You could add to this list. I just have five kind of dumb reasons, but the first one, and this is the one that I think resonates the most with me at least, is because I am I do not want to be humbled. And if I submit myself to Jesus Christ, it's humble, right? You will be humbled. There's a necessity of it. So it's like, man, I don't want to be humbled. Paul was going to be humbled. He's actually going to, he's falling on the ground at this point in time. I don't want to be humble. And so I will resist it so that I can maintain my like preeminence and my kind of kinghood. I'm, I'm the master of my own life. Nope. Coming to terms with the fact that you've been wrong can be a difficult thing, can't it? When you realize you've been wrong, and this is something that we experience in marriage and relationships, even with our own kids, it's like, 
you, you come to terms with the fact that you have been wrong, but I refuse to admit it because I'm an idiot, I suppose, first of all. And second of all, because I don't want her to know she was right. Because that's even worse, probably, or something, you know? Like, what's worse, me being wrong or her being I don't know. I'm just not going to do any of it. <laughs> and so I resist it and I fight against it. But here's the deal. The whole point, you know deep down inside you're wrong. And you continuing to just not admit it and not humble yourself is only causing more pain and is only causing more fighting and, and difficulty. It's like, why do we do this stuff? Well, sin's there. We need to be changed. We need a lot of Lord to do that work. Knowing so much is going to have to change and being terrified of how that's going to go. Have you guys ever experienced that? That if I submit to what the Lord's wanting to do in my life right here, what's going to happen then? And so you just resist and you kick against it. How could I possibly be good enough to follow after Jesus, right? Well, that's the whole point. You're not. Rest in him. Enjoy him. Follow him. Be with him, right? Things of that nature. Knowing that you're going to lose control. Knowing that you're going to lose control. You're not in control in the first place. And so don't be deceived in that way. But this is how it goes with kids. It's like, you look at these things and I look at my kids and it's like, this is a long time ago. We don't have these issues anymore. But you look at your kids and it's like, I'm going to win. I'm going to. That the last one is prolonging what you know is inevitable. And you look at like, why would you not listen to me? I'm going to win. I will outlast you. I'll tag my wife. She'll outlast you. I will outlast you. We will win. Like you aren't going to win. You And like you've been here so many different times. You can't say those words. You can't talk like that. Like just admit you're wrong and move on because you're not going to win. And here's the Lord. Same thing. Paul, it's hard if you kick against the goads, isn't it? Just bow your knee. Submit and yield to the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop fighting. Stop resisting. Humble yourself and let the Lord fill you and make you whole and give you peace and bring you to this relationship with him. Paul is kicking against the goads. What does it mean to prolong the inevitable? <clears throat> it was a phrase that was used by a guy named Bishop uh, Dullahan. He was Coach Dullahan, Bishop Dullahan passing camps. I don't know if you guys ever heard of it when you were growing up. It was the thing when I was growing up. And so we'd go to Bishop Dullahan passing camps. And my coach at the time is Jake Gilbert. He was from Ben Davis. And so we're now we're over in this podunk little North Montgomery. It's where I was from. And we're a little two-way school. Well, here's our coach wanting us to go to Bishop Dullahan camp with all like Ben Davis and the big 5A schools. So we show up like trying to be tough and be strong. We're just kind of corn-fed guys doing the best we can. And, you know, there's like 100, 200 guys just testosterone like crazy trying to do this. And we just, we, were, we went as linebackers at the time. And so we'd go, we would just ram our skulls together like a bunch of literal animals. We would just do this and, uh, you know, and that's just what you did then, I suppose. And there was a guy, Coach Dullahan, we would, we would go out there in the morning and, you know, you'd be exhausted from just all day long of trying to be an alpha male or something. You're just trying hard and stuff. You're exhausted from all the practices and so on. And you get out there and you're early in the morning and whatever. And he sits there and I remember it to this day. It's been ingrained and burned in my memory. It's probably traumatic, right? Where he'd sit there on this bullhorn and he would say, don't prolong the inevitable. And he would just say that. He'd say, chop, chop, chop. And we would just have to start running. We'd have to run. What was inevitable? Running was inevitable we'd sit out there and run and run and run it's like what this i'm not pay Ugh, never mind okay like why did i pay money to run <laughs> anyway uh i'm over it i promise don't prolong the inevitable you get to a spot where you know it you just know that you know that you know right 
you come to a place, it's like, ah, oh, man, just submit. Just go. That was the thing. Like, just run. <laughs> just go. Stop resisting. Just start running. Psalm 32, I've taken too long. It's my fault. It's a really good psalm. You should read it. If you're taking notes, it's part of this. And it's a really sweet section where the Lord or David is at the spot where he's like, I held these things in. I knew what was right. I didn't do it. And it just like rotted me from the inside out. But it says, it begins with, blessed is a man whose in, who's iniquity is not imputed to him. God forgives him. How sweet is that? He's like, I held on to things, but then God was so gracious with me and allowed me to be forgiven. It's like the sweet thing. What does it require? Repentance a submission to him, a yielding to him, right? And so that's Psalm 32, one through seven, phenomenal stuff. You see the only response that works is in verse six, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you stop kicking against the goads? You submit and you say, God, here I am. What do you want me to do? You obey him. And that's the only response. We're gonna read quite a bit here. Then those who journeyed with him uh, stood speechless. You can imagine why. Hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Has it ever happened to you? It's not really ever happened to me at all. And so if you heard a voice, but saw no one, that would be weird, right? So they're experiencing that. This happened in real life, right? Saul rose from the ground, having been knocked down, right? And when his eyes were open, he saw nobody, but they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. The days of Paul leading his own life were over. And from this point forward, the king was going to lead it. If Jesus wanted him to go to this place, guess where he's going to go? He's going to go to that place. If the spirit forbids him to go to Bithynia, Paul's not going to go. If the spirit says, no, don't go to Asia, Paul says, okay, I'm not going to go to Asia. He's being led by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. No longer does Paul lead his life. Paul says, I'm going to go to Damascus. No, not anymore, Paul. You're following Jesus now. He gets to call the shots. He gets to make the decisions. I follow him. If Paul's sitting there and has a vision of a Macedonian man saying, come here and help us, then guess what Paul's going to do? He's going to go over there and help them. He's in the grips now of the king of kings. No longer does he lead himself. There was a certain disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And to, the Lord, and, and to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am. And that's so fun. Here I am, Lord. The Lord said, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one who is called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, <clears throat> excuse me, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. <clears throat> you see an orchestration happening, right? We've seen it so many times in the book of Acts where you never know, never know what God is doing, right? You never know what he's doing. And so you come to a place where Paul's, or I'm sorry, where Ananias is hearing these things. The Lord is speaking to him in a, in a vision. Like that's pretty cool in and of itself. But then he wants him to go to this guy named Saul. And you'll find out here that, well, Saul is well known by this point in time. Ananias answers and, answered and said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Now, you can probably understand why he would be tentative to go and hang out with Paul because Paul would want to kill him. And so this is a little bit different, a contrast you could see perhaps from last week when we talked about Philip and his readiness to go and do whatever God called him to. He's in a revival in Samaria. God says, hey, I want you to go to a desert. 
Philip says, okay. He goes to a desert. And while he's there, he sees this entourage, the Ethiopian eunuch, and those who were with him. And as he's there, it says in, in uh, Acts chapter 8, that the Spirit says to him, go and overtake the chariot. And so what Philip did was he went and overtook the chariot. We talked a little bit about how that might have been awkward for him to go up to. Like there's a guy of great prestige and wealth, and here's Philip, just a dude. And now he's going to go over there and talk to this person. Like that's awkward. Like, hi, uh, I'm Philip from someplace, and uh, the Spirit told me to talk to you, you know? But all of a sudden, as he gets close to him, he realizes, what? This dude is reading from Isaiah. And he's like, do you understand? He's like, no, can you come here and help me? He's like, oh, God, you're so good. You just never know what God's doing. Obey, right? Obey him. Trust him, right? I'm, I'm still learning this. Like, I want to learn to obey the voice of the Spirit better and better and better. So we get to a spot then where here Ananias is hearing these visions, see this vision of Jesus, and we don't read Philip say anything, but here we read Ananias. He's like, man, Lord, are you sure? This guy is a dirty dude. <laughs> and so then Jesus responds to him, and check it out. He addresses zero of Ananias' concern, right? Zero. He says, go, for he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Paul has the privilege of bearing the name of Jesus now. He will. What does that mean? Can you imagine like on your back, maybe you can think you're bearing in a good way, not in an appropriate way, but in a good way, you get to represent and bear the name of Jesus. What a privilege. Every one of you have that. Yours might look differently. If you were to type in here or to look in there and say, all right, you know, Jordan, he is going to do this, this, this. Like, what is it that it is for you is going to be different. Paul's ministry was Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel. We'll watch that unfold in the book of Acts. But here we have him. That's what he's going to do. And bear his name. You guys get to bear his name. That was the job for Paul. <laughs> Jesus addresses none of Ananias' concerns. He only reaffirms what he's asking him to do. So there's instruction there. Trust him. Obey him. If Jesus says go, I better go. All right? You guys with me? If Jesus says go, I better go. And trust him with the results. Trust him with the outcome, whatever that might be. Trust him. I understand that that's something that I can preach from a pulpit. And you guys will like nod your head, will fire it up. Like, I get it. I know that it lives hard. It's difficult to navigate those things and to really fully trust him because it's like, it's just hard. I know. But my encouragement is here we all are sitting, hanging out together. It's like, man, uh, let's, let's just try like asking the Lord to help us with it, to listen to him and know his voice and to understand what he's trying to say. And I wanted to share this very briefly because time will not allow us to go into it very much. But concerning visions, I wanted to point this out, that a vision comes from God, God alone. Vision is different than visualization. This is something that is sovereign, that God has ordained, that uh, Ananias would see, that Paul would see. Now, can you position yourself before the Lord? Of course you can. What does that look like? Being in the word, being in prayer, where I'm just sitting before the Lord saying, God, here, like what Ananias said, here I am. Have your way, God. Speak. Do your thing. But a vision isn't something I conjure in my imagination. A vision is something God gives you. And I believe that you know that it's him who gives it to you. You don't have to wonder. Now, there might be times where it's like, man, I, I remember driving to work and God gave me a vision. Uh, I won't explain it all, but he gave me a vision. And it's like, what in the world? And I thought there's just no way. It's too big, too intense. Couldn't do it. It's concerned St. Kitts before we went and moved there. 
There's no way. But it's like, man, it was the Lord. I knew it. And God confirmed it there. I wasn't sitting there trying to visualize or do anything. I was driving to work, minding my own business. And God did his thing, right? Like it was a sovereign work of God. So bear that in mind, small little aside, but I know there's a lot more that could go into a discussion like that, but I just wanted to bring that before you because we're seeing these visions. They come from the Lord. They come from the Lord, not me. So just bear that in mind. Joel chapter 2, 28 through 32 discussed that very thing, that that's what would happen. All right, we got to be done. All right. Okay, that's good. Whatever. Good. Okay. Verse 17, Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying hands on his, on him. Oh, by the way, verse 17 is called obedience, right? You guys tracking? Obedience. Jesus says, Ananias like, I don't know about that, Jesus. Jesus is like, go. He's like, okay. <laughs> and he goes, he obeys. Ananias went, found Paul, brother Paul, brother Saul, Lord Jesus, who's appeared to you on the road as you can, as you come, has sent me to you to receive your sight, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. Now, um, as you guys can probably imagine, some work could be done in the heart of Paul, where he was a follower of Jesus by this point in time. He saw him. He said, here I am, Lord. What do you mean to do? Okay, he's a follower of Christ. And then Ananias comes and lay hands on that he might receive the Spirit. And that was what we talked about. I can't go into it all. Man. I wish we had like 55 hours. But uh, what we talked about, the difference between the Spirit being with you, the Spirit being in you, and then the Spirit coming upon you. And this would be that, which he, the Spirit came upon him. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. He arose and was baptized. When he received food, he was strengthened, and Saul spent some days with the disciples in Damascus. So I'm pausing. Or we're going to be finished with this. In Acts chapter... Well, I'll do this. Concerning verse 16, really quickly, and the suffering, I just wanted to make sure if you're taking notes to have this, we don't have a lot of time, well, many time actually, but 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 22 through 28, talk about Paul's sufferings. It was a promise that he was given. You're going to suffer. And as he goes on, the Lord comes to him, and he starts following Jesus. He's filled with the Spirit, and God begins to do a work. And my encouragement is this, for those of you who are out there to... To understand this, that it's one of those things where it's like a whosoever, John 3, 16 thing. That whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And you look at somebody like Paul, who to the Christians at the time would have been the last person alive they would have ever thought would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And yet he did. And that's awesome. And that's something that should encourage us as we pray for people because you never know what God's doing. You never know what vision they might be getting or a dream they might have of him. You never know. That God is the God who saves the whosoever, whosoever believes. That means that you're not too far from him, that he can save you in your sin and in your difficult position, he can save you. Your neighbor that you're talking to or your per person of business, man, he can save him. Whosoever, just hold fast to that and don't forget. And it, I think it increases your faith to remember that it's a whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Believe that. And I wanted to share this last thing because of this section. Go ahead and pop that picture up there. We did this two Wednesdays ago, but in, in a similar vein as what we're doing here in Acts chapter 9, this is Dr. Nasir, as you can read. He is the mom of the mosque and fishers. And I thought there's just conversation that was happening, an opportunity to maybe go and have some like round tables and discussions. But this is a guy who is being used in a really instrumental way among the Muslims here in the community. And it's like, man, God loves him. Jesus paid and he bore the iniquity of Nasir on him. 
He's gone his own way. He's gone astray. And Jesus Christ bore that iniquity and loves him. And I want to bring him before you as the church and ask you to pray for him by name. There's his picture. There's his name. But I wanted to bring it before all of you. Like I said, we did it Wednesday night two weeks ago. But this isn't something we'll do like regular. I'm just saying if you have a list that you pray for, would you include him? And as a church, let's pray. We can get five, 600 people praying and then more and more and more that God would meet him much like he did with, with Paul, right? That God would meet him and knock him down and like he would bow his knee to Jesus Christ and would recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. And he would put his faith in that God would use him in an incredible and mighty way here in this community and for the others that, that he would draw many people into the kingdom of God um, for the sake of Jesus Christ that maybe God, would you, would you cause Nasir to bear your name to many others, right? So let's pray. I'm not trying to be um, dramatic or sensationalist. I just thought, you know what? Why not? Why not pray for him? Uh, he's, he's got a lot of influence in this area and is continuing to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. So let's pray that God grabs a hold of his heart. <laughs>